0: We are in Psalm 102, uh, 102 tonight, uh, Messiah, the unchanging God. Psalm 102 is definitely messianic in the sense that Hebrews 1, uh, 10 through 11, directly applies Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, to Jesus Christ. I mean, when you have a direct application of a text to Jesus, it's pretty safe to say this is a messianic text, right? Right. Right. <laughs> That's right. Just seeing if you were listening. Uh, Psalm 102 has no author, and there is no historical occasion that is specifically mentioned. However, the reference to uh, the need to rebuild Zion uh, seems to indicate a national calamity in the background. And because of this emphasis on the restoration, the need for the restoration of Zion... Uh, Many commentators believe the Babylonian captivity is probably in the background as far as uh, what the concerns uh, of the writer are and may provide the background to the affliction uh, that he is experiencing. Now, the individual uh, writing expresses distress, but again, it may be in light of the greater picture of the national disaster that he is going through as well as the, the whole nation. And, of course, references to Zion would seem to add weight to that. So the sense is that the person writing is afflicted because of the situation with Zion and finds solace in the unchanging God who ultimately will fulfill uh, his purposes for his people. So uh, note the outline uh, here, uh, theme afflicted but trusting in God. We have a plea for divine help through uh, through verse 11, and then a perspective of God's sovereignty, verses 12 through 22, And then a prayer for preservation in verses 23 through 28. So this psalm is about changes in life that bring distress. Ever had any of those? Yeah, if you haven't, you will. Uh, But then finding comfort in the unchanging God. You know, one thing about life, everything's changing all the time, but God's not. God's not changing. So we find hope and strength by focusing on the unchanging God who is sovereign over the whole of life. Let's pick it up at, uh, note the uh, superscription here. Uh, A prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Again, we don't know who the author was or the occasion. But again, it seems that God's people, Israel, and uh, their capital city are in need of restoration. And that kind of is providing the background for uh, this affliction. May well have been the Babylonian captivity as far as background. Verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of trouble. Incline your ear to me in the day that I call. Answer me speedily. In deep affliction, what do God's people do? Well, we pray. We pray. Uh, We pour out our hearts to God. And that's what we have here. He's saying, do not hide your face. That's the sense of pleading with God to respond. And to respond speedily. He says... uh, Verse, uh, the idea is kind of, if you don't respond speedily, I might not be here long. Uh, Verse 3, for my days are consumed like smoke and my bones are burned like a hearth. My heart is stricken and withered like grass so that I forget to eat my bread. Because of the sound of my groaning, my bones cling to my skin. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I lie awake and I am like a sparrow alone on the housetop. Pretty miserable condition that he is describing here. First of all, he begins with a description of ill health. And that he's in pain, he's in agony. The situation is really tearing him up. Physically, he is burning up. Spiritually, his heart is aching to where he has no appetite. He's so weak and thin that his bones cling to his skin. And in that condition, he is groaning. So it's really a miserable situation uh, physically that he's describing. And also inwardly, emotionally, spiritually, uh, describes himself as a, as a pelican in the wilderness, or like an owl of the desert. Pelicans and owls uh, were metaphorically known for their, for their gloom. Uh, they kind of picture gloom in a sense. I mean, even the so, uh, sound of an owl sounds a little gloomy, right? Woo, woo. <laughs> yeah. I can do roosters too, you know. Anyway. <laughs> Doesn't fit the text. <laughs> and uh, he felt all alone like a sparrow sitting all by itself on a rooftop. Every once in a while you see that, right? Uh, I've got a little bird feeder outside my... I say I, I've got pets now. They're, out, they're outside pets. But uh, I like to watch those little birds. They come and eat the food and they, you know, do their thing. But anyway like a sparrow sitting all by itself on a housetop. He was hurting physically and emotionally, and perhaps worst of all, he is going through it all alone. You know, it's really tough. Uh, It's tough when you go through it alone. You have somebody, but if you're alone, that's especially tough. And that's what he says here. Uh, Everything he's going through, he says, I'm alone. I'm like a sparrow, alone on a housetop. And there in that condition, here come the enemies. Boy, they have a way of just showing up, don't they? Verse 8, my enemies reproach me all the day long. I mean, they're, they're, having, they're talking about him. They're reproaching him. Those who deride me swear an oath against me, for I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping because of your indignation and your wrath, for you have lifted me up and cast me away. My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass. We would like to know some specifics here, but he doesn't give them to us. It's one thing to be hurting physically and emotionally in isolation, but then add to that enemies who seek to take advantage of the situation to try and bring you down. Yet in the midst of it all, the writer recognizes that God is sovereign over his circumstances. He says God's indignation and wrath are behind it and that God has cast him away. Again, he may be thinking through the lens of what has happened to the nation and perhaps his uh, specific experience in that context related to the Babylonian captivity. Again, we're not given specifics. But twice he mentions that he is like withering grass, as seen in verse 4 and then again in verse 11. Now, the Bible often uses this uh, illustration that people are like grass, In Isaiah 40, 6 through 8, the voice said, Cry out, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. If we focus on ourselves, on our physical strength, on our resources, on other people, We will be bummed out. Uh, We are all like fading grass that quickly passes off the scene. We do not chart our course, you know, I guess within a sense we do as far as human responsibility, but ultimately God is sovereign over uh, the course of history, including our own history. It seems like we're just kind of captive to it in certain ways, and it just takes us where it will. And focus on self is depressing. Cory Ten Boom said it pretty well. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Isaiah chapter 2, you know, he talks about in the day of the Lord, how the Lord alone will be exalted and, and the pride of man will be put down. And he says, sever yourselves from such a man. You know, this egotistical man that's being described throughout Isaiah 2. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. Really cocky for, you know, you're just one breath away. uh, Whose breath is in his nostrils. For of what account is he? It's like grass. The great emphasis of Scripture is to not focus on man, but rather on God. In all of our troubles, we need to focus on the unchanging God. And that's where he goes. This is where we find solace. And that's where the writer now goes. Verse 12, but you, O Lord, but is a contrast word. But you, O Lord, shall endure forever and the remembrance of your name to all generations. People come and people go. They're like grass that quickly withers away. But in contrast, the Lord endures forever. You know, the Lord's not going anywhere. People in their depravity try very hard to remove God totally from their lives. But they continue to fail miserably. God's name continues to be remembered and will be through all generations. God's not going anywhere. He's not going to do the great fade as people do. Uh, Even in the darkest of times, the darkest times of apostasy, God is still there and the truth of his name continues to go forth. David Gazik says, We note the contrast between the first 11 verses, which were filled with personal references, I, me, and my, and verses 12 and following with the words, But you. The focus changes and is set on God. I think that is the great issue in life. Where's my focus going to be? Is it going to be me and my circumstances, or is it going to be God and who He is? There's the great challenge in life. Where's my focus going to be? Well, God is the one constant. He is unchanging and enduring. People come and people go, but God remains. And in due time, God will turn things around for his people. And that is certainly true in relation to Jerusalem and his people Israel. He's going to mention Zion. Now, uh, so goes Zion. uh, So goes the people of Israel. Uh, Zion, in effect, is the poetical name for old Jerusalem, uh, the capital city, also known as uh, the city of David or the city of God. The word Zion literally means fortification. And the Bible is clear that God loves Zion. He's got a a favorite place, and that is Zion. He loves Zion more than any other place on the planet. We don't have to wonder about it. It says so in Psalm 87. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Selah. Remembering that God is enduring, goes hand in hand with knowing that God will accomplish His purposes regarding Zion. So he says, verse 13, You will arise and have mercy on Zion. It will happen. For the time to favor her, yes, the set time has come. For your servants take pleasure in her stones and show favor to her dust. So not only does God love Zion, but so do his servants. God's people love God, and they love what God loves. Now, in God's timing, he will restore Zion. It will happen, but it is all conditioned on God's timing. You know, it says in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, The least will become a thousand and the smallest a mighty nation. I am Yahweh. I will accomplish it quickly in its time. Now, there's a context here related to ultimately the kingdom to come. But uh, I want us to focus on that. I will accomplish it quickly in its time. God's plan, his purpose. God's timing is always right on time. God has a plan and he has a timetable. And he's in charge of both of them. Psalm 102, verse 13, speaks of the set time in which God will favor Zion. Now, there was a set time of 70 years after which Israel was delivered from Babylon. And there is a set time when Zion will be delivered and restored at the second coming. And then God will be exalted among the nations, verse 15 and on. So the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. For the Lord shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute and shall not despise their prayer. This is where this whole emphasis on on Zion and the ultimate restoration uh, comes into play here. Now, God's beleaguered people have been praying for Jerusalem through the ages. And God's set time uh, for restoration of, of Jerusalem will ultimately be answered. But we're continuing to pray. I mean, it says in Psalm 122, verse 6, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You ever pray for Jerusalem? I'm sure you do. And you're probably praying for the peace of Jerusalem, as I am. Uh, May they prosper who love you. And then in Isaiah 66 again, uh, verse 6 and 7, I have set a watchman on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. So we're talking about prayer. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So it's kind of like you continue to uh, plead with God and bring your request before God and don't give him any rest until he does this, until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Verse 18, This will be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. So this is written down, so that future generations may see how God has worked to bring about the fulfillment of answered prayer in relationship to Jerusalem. And therefore, we'll praise the Lord. Well, this is certainly true in relation to the restoration of Israel, of Judah from Babylon, from the Babylonian captivity. But we'll have an even greater fulfillment in relation to the grand restoration that will take place at the second coming, which I think ultimately the previous verses have in view. Verse 19. <clears throat> For he looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven the Lord viewed the earth. What's he see? To hear the groaning of the prisoner. To release those appointed to death. To declare the name of the Lord in Zion. And his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples are gathered together. And, his, and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. So God takes note of what is happening with his people. And especially in view here is his people Israel, as seen again in the emphasis on Zion. Now his people Israel have long been groaning, but one day they will be delivered. And then Zion will be the worship center of the world. What a day that's going to be. In Joel, uh, emphasis on the day of the Lord, that's the main theme of the book. But we read in Joel 3, "The the Lord also will roar from Zion. Where's the roar? Where's the epicenter of the roar? Zion. And utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. Not going to be afflicted by the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles are past. They're never going to afflict Jerusalem again. And then in Zechariah, chapter 8, and verse 3, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So we see as we look into the future that Jerusalem, Zion, the poetic name for, for Jerusalem, is going to have a special place. The Lord's going to dwell there. This is going to be the capital of his earthly kingdom. Well, having refocused on God and his enduring nature and what this means for the future of his people, the writer sees in the end that God will restore and it will be a glorious time for Zion. Yet in real time, he is afflicted and he prays accordingly. Verse 23, He weakened my strength in the way. He shortened my days. I said, oh, my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your days are throughout all generations. (laughs) You know, it's almost a little bit humorous. It's almost like he gets very personal with God at this point. I mean, he figuratively speaks of God's eternality. Your uh, Your years are throughout all generations. But then he bemoans the fact that his time is shortened and specifically asks that God may not take him away in the midst of his days, literally at the halfway point of his life. So he says, God, God, you're forever, but my time's like being cut short here. Please, please extend my time. Verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. But you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them. And they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Now these verses emphasize that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of His hands. But he says the whole of creation, however, is growing old like a garment and will perish. God will one day change them. You know what happens? You get some really old clothes. You start over, right? You change. Uh, God will one day change them. Uh, He's going to change the present heavens and earth. Uh, Like putting on a new garment. Now there is debate among scholars whether God will in the end renovate this present current planet earth or will he completely annihilate it and start all over from scratch. Well there are good scholars on both sides and this is one of those in-house little debates that ultimately you know doesn't matter in in the ultimate sense here for sure. But I'm more and more open to the renovation idea. I'm I'm not firm there but I'm very open. Uh, The renewal idea fits well with the Bible's storyline, including the idea that even nature itself groans under sin, but will one day enter into the glorious liberation of the children of God. Just as believers will one day have a new glorified body. You know what? What's God going to do with your body? Are we talking annihilation? (laughs) No. He's going to resurrect those bodies in a glorified form. But he's going to, no matter how far it's reduced down, he's going to start with what's there and then he's going to redo it. He's going to make it a glorified body out of what's there. I'm not so sure we don't have the same situation with, with the earth. Perhaps even so with this present earth, uh, it will have a new glorified form, so to speak. It will be changed in, in that sense. We read uh, such things as this in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. For the earnest expectation of the creation. What's the creation figuratively expecting? Well, it eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. What's going to happen with the sons of God? Well, we're going to be glorified bodies. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's hope for the creation too. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So there's kind of a parallel that's going on here. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. You know, we're breaking down, right? Amen, amen, we're breaking down. So is creation, the whole of creation. Now it is pointed out that God is seeking the restoration of all things. Acts 3.21, not the annihilation of all things. And yet strong arguments can be made for annihilation and recreation from texts like 2 Peter 3, 7 and verse 10. Also Revelation 20, verse 10 and 21, verse 1. Still the language here in Psalm 102 emphasizes ultimately that the present earth will be changed like a garment. Like one would take off an old ragged shirt and put on a new one. Psalm 102 emphasizes the transitory nature of the present heavens and earth. The earth and the heavens will perish. Perish means to be destroyed. The heavens and the earth are even now in the process of breaking down. They are growing old like a well-worn garment. This is what is known in scientific terms as the second law of thermodynamics, otherwise known as entropy. Simply put, Everything in the universe is deteriorating. You say, it's not evolving for the better? No. Everything is breaking down. Second law of thermodynamics. Every scientist worth of salt will admit, yeah, the second law of thermodynamics. By the way, this is the exact opposite of the theory of evolution, which claims that everything's getting better. Now, you got some real serious stinking thinking there. It smells pretty bad. Uh, it, it's amazing how many scientists want to claim science, yeah, that holy name science. You know, somebody says, yeah, science, uh, it's like, well, maybe we, are we talking science or are we talking something else? Uh, but they, can be, they claim science but be so inconsistent when true science, such as the second law of thermodynamics, runs contrary to their cherished theories. You see, the theory of evolution says billions and billions of years, Involving cycle upon cycle of deterioration, destruction, and death equals everything evolving for the better. Out of a tale of continuous destruction and death, somehow life emerges. I mean, you talk about confounding reason. It's the exact opposite of reality. You see, creation starts with life and everything was in a perfect condition. But then out of that reality came the fall, sin and death. Genesis 3. And from then, from then on, everything is dying. Everything is breaking down. There are no exceptions. You say, well, I got something that's not breaking down. Oh, yeah? Bring it. There's no exceptions. There are no missing evolving links, going in the opposite direction. The law of entropy is universal. Well, this reality completely debunks the concept of evolution. It was only the introduction of sin that resulted in death. And ever since, there has been an evolution of death, if you will, not life. Well, who is sovereign over this process? It's God. It's God. And it is he who, like a cloak, will fold them up, and they will be changed. The earth needs change, and who's going to do it? Well, there's all this talk and panic about global warming, climate change. Freak out! Stop driving your car. How'd you get here tonight? You should have walked. Stop cooking on your gas stoves. Stop breathing for crying out loud. You're not helping the planet. By all means, do something to save the planet. You know, Thomas Leith recently wrote an article that I read called Extreme Weather as a Sign of Climate Change. He writes, In February, a violent hurricane swept across northern Germany. Numerous people and animals were killed and large areas devastated, remaining flooded for several months. In May, severe thunderstorms erupted over large parts of central Germany. Rivers rose by several meters within just a few hours. Over 2,200 people lost their lives. In July, the Auer Valley region of southwestern Germany was hit by an extremely serious storm and flooding, the likes of which have never been experienced before. And he gives examples. He goes on and on, all kinds of examples. And he says, all these can be said to be clear evidence of man-made climate change. But then he says, but there's one thought-provoking thing to consider. These things all happened in the 1600s, the 1700s, and the 1800s. (laughs) And then he says, catastrophes of devastating magnitude, even climate change, have always existed and always will. Mankind will never be able to influence the climate, either for good or for bad. How can intelligent people be so naive as to believe they can change the climate and save the world? As the Bible says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Fools scamper about thinking they're somehow going to save the planet. What folly. Now, certainly there's a place for balanced and good stewardship, which controls pollution, etc. We all agree on that. But changing the climate... And preserving the planet, give me a break. We can't even control the economy or the crime rate or the borders, much less the weather and the climate. I mean, we ought to start with the smaller stuff. And in this discussion, we as Christians should always keep in mind the promise of God. Believe God, not man. Uh, You know, it will alleviate your fears in the face of all the fear-mongering that the world constantly pushes. Genesis 8.22 still says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, I repeat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. I mean, is God sure about this? I mean, who's in control here? Yeah, he is. Note it well, mere man will not save the planet, and neither will he terminate the universe. This will be God's doing. He is sovereign over creation. Uh, He created all and he's going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth. He'll bring about the change. He'll do away with the present heavens and earth and he will create the new. This is a God thing. This is God's activity. But in contrast to the present earth perishing and growing old, God endures. He is ever the same, he does not change. His years have no end. He is eternal life. But here's the point I want to make that connects this psalm to being messianic. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1 verses 10 through 12, under inspiration, the writer applies what is clearly said in reference to God in Psalm 102 verses 27 or 25 through 27 uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read there in Hebrews chapter 1, And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Now, here's what's happening in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 develops the idea that Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is shown to be superior because he is eternal while angels are created beings who had a beginning. Jesus created, while angels were created. Bible knowledge commentary, the psalmist was addressing the eternal Lord, and the writer of Hebrews identified Jesus as the eternal one, the creator and sustainer of the world. This is a strong affirmation of the deity of Jesus Jesus Christ, and indeed it is. Verse 28, The children of your servants will continue, and their descendants will be established before you. Here's the conclusion of the whole matter. Since God is sovereign and enduring, his plans for his people will be fulfilled. The children of God's people will endure, and their descendants will be established. Thus a psalmist, because of who God is as the enduring and unchanging God, has great confidence in the survival of the Jewish people. Because God does not change, the future of Israel is secure. Everything hinges on who God is as the sovereign, unchanging one. All his purposes will be accomplished in the future, no matter what the present circumstances may look like. Well, in conclusion, let me share this true story with you. But in order for you to appreciate it, you need to understand what is meant by the term neo-orthodoxy. Is that a new term to you? It very well may be. Well, Karl Barth is considered to be the father of what is termed neo-orthodoxy. Neo-orthodoxy puts the emphasis on uh, human uh, experience and and coming to the Bible subjectively. Uh, Neo-orthodoxy says the Bible becomes the Word of God to you. uh, As a person encounters Christ in their own subjective experience. Very subjective. In this view, the authority is the subjective experience of the individual rather than the scriptures themselves. Well, here's my story. Years ago, Carl Henry was a major leader among the evangelicals. And he was the founder of the magazine that we know today as Christianity Today. And uh, Carl Henry definitely believed in the authority of the Scripture to speak for itself. No matter what your subjective experience may tell you, uh, the real authority is what the Bible itself says. Well, a meeting was somehow arranged for him to, uh, for Carl Henry to meet with Carl Barth, who was pushing Neo Orthodoxy. Well, Carl Barth was quite full of himself and his new ideas. And he considered himself to be a very intelligent person. And he came off as snobbish. Well, as they met, Carl Henry said to him, Hi, I'm uh, uh, from Christianity Today, uh, the magazine you know? And uh, Bart responded, From Christianity Today or Christianity Yesterday? And in turn, Henry replied, Christianity yesterday and today and forever. True Christianity is unchanging because Christ himself is our unchanging God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. And as shown in Psalm 102, as applied to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, he is the eternal unchanging God. Well, praise to our unchanging God who is shown to be the true Messiah. Let's stand and have our closing song.